All right, it's a privilege to be with you and uh, so good to sing together. I just I love that and remembering great truths, confessing great truths about the sovereignty of God. Our God is the ancient of days. He sits on his throne. He is powerful. He is the king of the universe and he is good. Uh, one of my favorite hymns of all time is definitely, It Is Well With My Soul. And uh, when I sing that, it, it, uh, I think about how amazing it is to be able to say that. It is well with my soul. Can you say that? And uh, that's not just something we feel. It is well with my soul. It's not just a statement about how we feel. It's actually a statement about what is true if you're a Christian. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And so... We have good news to proclaim as a church. I, I'm so thankful that I get to be a preacher and talk about the gospel Sunday after Sunday because uh, we serve a great God who is holy, but a God who is kind and saves sinners. So if you're here today, I have good news for you. Uh, Jesus uh, saves sinners. And he speaks. He is speaking to us today. So if you'll take your Bible and open with me to Luke chapter 11. We are continuing to talk about prayer. You remember we're kind of walking our way through the Lord's Prayer, uh, which is not so much a prayer that he prayed, actually, uh, though he did pray parts of it, but it is more a model for us how to pray. Jesus teaches us how to pray. And we're walking through what he says phrase by phrase, slowly, uh, because he's talking about a lot of big things, Jesus, like the gospel, the doctrine of adoption, the glory of God, the plan of God, eschatology even, the, the danger of self-sufficiency, learning dependence on God. It's amazing how much Jesus talks about in just this one short prayer, and that's kind of why I wanted to begin our time together as a church by uh, talking about it. It takes us almost everywhere we need to go in terms of doctrine. We're hitting on some really important doctrines. And in terms of everyday life, living out the Christian life, this prayer, the Lord's Prayer here in Luke 11, has uh, a lot to say about doctrine, and it has a lot to say about the Christian life. Like today, we're going to look at Verse 4, Luke 11, verse 4, and just the beginning part, actually. And talking about one key step to experiencing fellowship, you could say communion, you could say closeness with God. One key step to enjoying your relationship with God. And it's going to take us a little while to get there. <laughs> So you're going to have to be patient. We're going to do some work first. But I, I want to give you, I want to at least remind you of one key step to experiencing fellowship, communion, closeness with God. And by fellowship, communion, closeness with God, I'm talking about just your everyday personal relationship with God. Your experience of it. The joy you experience, the, the peace you experience. I think we could say intimacy even, though intimacy is a little bit of a funny word. People have different ideas about what it means, but I'm just talking about your experience in your daily personal relationship with God. Because objectively, in terms of how it is for you as a Christian, 
if you're a Christian, you are close to God. You are in Christ. And so you really couldn't get any closer, even if you don't feel close, which is good news. Good news. Your closeness to God is not ultimately based on your sense of closeness to God. Say that three times to yourself because it's important. If you are in a state of grace, if you are saved, you are happy, safe, and sure whether or not you feel happy, safe, and sure. But obviously as Christians, we're not content with just knowing that objectively we're happy, safe, and sure. We want to experience that. We're not content where there is little joy or little peace or little hope in our lives. I read uh, this year uh, a book called Heaven on Earth. It's, a, it's an old Puritan book. And the title comes from someone named Joseph Carlyle. And he says, the greatest thing that you can desire next to the glory of God is the salvation of your soul. And the sweetest thing, the greatest thing you can desire is your own salvation. The sweetest thing you can desire is the assurance of your salvation. In this life, we cannot get higher than to be assured of that which in the next life is to be enjoyed. All the saints shall enjoy a heaven when they leave this earth. Every single true believer is going to heaven. Some saints enjoy a heaven while they're on this earth. And that heaven that he's talking about, assurance of salvation, he describes later as communion with God. Where you have, he says, Christ sweetly descending to the soul and the soul by divine influences sweetly ascending to Christ. In other words, knowing that Christ loves you deep down and loving Christ. We're going to talk about Ephesians later in the year. We're going to look at the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians 1, you see that Paul says, as Christians, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what we have. And yet knowing that we have that, we'll see that Paul prays that we'll know that experientially, that being loved by God, Paul's big prayer for us as Christians, is that we'll know the breadth and depth and height and width of the love that Jesus Christ has for us. The way uh, John Owen talks about this, and he's an old theologian, he talks about union and communion with God. So union is done. If you're a believer, you have been united to Christ. God did that. It's unchangeable. You have union with God. But communion, on the other hand, is different. Communion with God is our response. It's our experience of God's love. And that does change and is even different for all of us. We have communion. We should long for communion. You can probably tell that I like the Puritans. If you haven't been able to tell that yet, you will over the years, I'm sure. And this is one of the things I like about them, actually, because they're really careful how they say it. And as you read the Puritans, you got to do a lot of work to make sure that you're actually understanding what they're saying. But once you can get through some of their language, you see that their view of real Christianity is much bigger than just intellectual knowledge. 
There's this relationship. There's this heart that is just beating with desire for God. Like again, John Owen, he says, what am I the better if I can dispute that Christ is God, but have no sense or sweetness in my heart from this, that he is a God in covenant with my soul. Owen was longing for the sense and sweetness that Christ is God. Or Jonathan Edwards, he talks about glorifying God and what it means. He says, the end of all creation is that you might glorify God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God? What is glorifying God? But a rejoicing at the glory that he's displayed. An understanding of the perfections of God merely cannot be the end of the creation for he might as well not understand it if all he does is see it and yet is not moved with joy at the sight. Of course, you need to understand. You need to understand, but there's more. Obviously, as Christians, we know there's going to be ups and downs in our Christian life, our daily experience. And so as we talk about this everyday relationship, we know there are going to be times of real struggle, like real struggle. In fact, even for some of the most godly people in scripture, there were times where they felt like God was almost absent. Like, listen to the way Psalm 10 begins. Why? Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And there's agony there. Or Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forgive me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And so we know it's not unusual for Christians to feel like that. So we talk about closeness and enjoying God on a daily basis. We know there are going to be times where you don't feel close. That's actually a pretty normal part of the Christian experience right now. If you felt that or feel that, that's actually a pretty normal part of the Christian experience because we're not in heaven. We're living under the curse. And yet that doesn't mean we stop wanting it. And that doesn't mean we stop doing what we're supposed to do just because we know that at times as Christians, we aren't enjoying and longing for God the way we want. Because we want to experience a personal daily communion with God. We want fellowship with God. We want friendship with God even. And that desire we have is normal. The, the struggle is normal. And so is the desire. And we see that in the Psalms as well. Like take Psalm 27, 4. The writer says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. And I love that. One thing. You know this verse. One thing that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And that means something, you know, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's like passionate language. He's using the, the language of sight, of longing. There is a passion in David's personal relationship with God. And, you know, I, I want that kind of passion for us as a church where we're not just talking about hoping, we hope where we're not just talking about fearing, we fear, where we're not just able to define and explain the Greek word for love. We're loving and experiencing a sense in our hearts of God's glory and beauty and presence. 
And I want to be careful, of course, because it's, it's easy for people to talk about closeness with God and intimacy with God in really weird ways where it's actually most, mostly about them as you listen. It's almost like they're using talking about God as an opportunity to primarily focus on themselves and their feelings and their experiences. And so we, we want to be careful. And yet just because sometimes people talk about closeness in, with God in strange ways doesn't mean we stop wanting closeness with God. That we stop wanting to be filled with a desire for his word and a delight in his son and with an inexpressible, overwhelming joy in what he's done for us. Check out 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, actually. That is Peter's evidences of true faith, inexpressible joy in Christ and love for Christ, which is part of why we're talking so much about prayer as a church, because that's one of prayer's purposes. That's one of the reasons God gave us prayer. It's not just something we do to get stuff from God, and it, it's certainly not a ritual, just a ritual that we perform without thought. Prayer is part of how we enjoy our relationship with God. It is a means that God has given to help us take the truths we believe and experience them. And it's what happens, actually, when we're experiencing and enjoying the truths we say we believe. We go to God in prayer, and we talk to God, and we enjoy God. It produces closeness, prayer, and it flows from that closeness. It's a gift God gave us. It's, it's grace. It's something that he designed to help us in our relationship with him. He comes. He takes the initiative. He speaks to us in his word. He speaks to you in his word. And then the Holy Spirit opens your eyes so that you can see what he's saying and you actually understand it. And then causes your heart to respond and open up. And you then go to God and express all that you're enjoying and all that you're learning about him to him. That's prayer. It's supposed to be something beautiful, prayer, and supposed to be something that helps us draw near to God. And yet, of course, the problem is we all know, we all know that it doesn't always seem to work like that for us. If you look at your prayer life, it doesn't always look beautiful. That's why so often when a pastor says he's going to teach about prayer, we feel like, oh, this is going to be hard. Because we know our prayer lives, and it doesn't always seem beautiful, and it doesn't always seem like it's producing much closeness with God either. And so it's kind of like we've been coming to Jesus the past few weeks, knowing what prayer is supposed to be, seeing its potential, and yet wondering, because we're not always experiencing that the way we want. And so we're coming here in Luke 11 to the person who knows the most about prayer in the entire universe. The person who is the best prayer, you might say, in the entire universe. And we're trying to take advantage of this opportunity to learn from him what is wrong with our prayer life and how we can improve it. And I, I think, I hope, as we have, two big things have been standing out. And really, so far, the first, probably more than the second. But first, one reason people have problems in their prayer life is because their prayers aren't connected to the gospel. And so they might even be enjoying their prayers, but God certainly isn't enjoying their prayers because they're not praying what's true. 
In other words, in the gospel, there are things that are true, that, that God says are true. And then there's this way that they're praying and they're not connected. It's, it's kind of like if your wife tells you, this is how I want you to approach me. And you say, yes, I understand. That's how you want me to approach you. And yet the next time you come and you do the exact opposite of what she was saying, that's going to create some issues in your relationship over time, which is what's happening for a lot of people in prayer. With God, God has certain things that he says are true. Like he says, your relationship with me is based on grace. And yet they approach him in prayer as if it's a work that they do to earn his favor. And then God says, it's about me and my glory. And yet they come in commanding and demanding and treating God as if he were their boy. And God says that he's got a really great plan that he's working on and it's something you should be focused on and longing for. And yet they pray as if that hardly mattered and what matters really is what they want and they get upset as if God's not doing anything because he's not doing what they want right at that moment, that they want it. And so obviously it's not surprising they're having problems in their relationship with God. If we're gonna commune with God, if we're gonna enjoy God, we need to pray. And if we're gonna pray, we need to pray the kind of prayers that actually please God, and if our prayers are gonna please God, they need to be connected to the gospel, which is maybe why Jesus has us begin prayer, Luke 11, by, by basically rehearsing some of the fundamental truths we confess as Christians in Luke 11, verse two. First we say, Father, which is us basically saying, I believe the gospel because it's only through Christ's work that we can call God Father and have it mean something. And so you remember, I've been trying to give you some guidelines for prayer, and that was our first word, our first rule for prayer. Believe, prayer that honors God starts with believing the gospel, Father. Then second, remember, that's next. Father, I want you to be glorified. Hallowed be your name. And saying that is like, God, I remember. I remember you are the one who's God, not me. And so you deserve to be exalted. You are holy. You are different. You are the one whose glory is supposed to be put on display here. And I know that's exactly what is going to happen, which is why I also pray your kingdom come, because that's what I'm hoping in, and that's what I'm longing for. As we come to God in prayer, the way Jesus teaches, it's like we're coming back to what's true. We're reorienting ourselves to what's real. Believe, remember, hope. Because we've been in the world so long and we've got all these lies coming at us like fast and furious. And as a result, we've got all these funny things that we start thinking even without realizing that we're thinking them all the time which keeps us from enjoying God, even though we're Christians, which keeps us from communing with God. And so we start off in prayer, pursuing communion with God with, this is what's true. This is what's true. I believe the gospel, Father. I remember your God, hallowed be your name. And I hope it's your plan that's most important. Your kingdom come, which is the place to start as you're pursuing intimacy with God in prayer. You've got to get theological. You have to connect your prayers back to truth, to theology. Prayer is theological. You've got to get your doctrine straight. And yet, obviously, you can't stop there just with getting your theology right, because there's another obstacle that we face in prayer, even if 
we've learned to say all the right things as we're talking to God. And this is an obstacle that I think for us might be an even bigger problem, honestly, in our relationship with God and can end up seriously hindering our prayer life. And that is just straight up pride. If you're going to to Jesus with problems in your prayer life and you're like, Dr. Jesus, this doesn't seem to be working the way I see it in the Bible. It's supposed to be working. Help me understand what's getting wrong. I think he might start, one, theology. Is what you're saying connected to the gospel? And then two, your heart. Are you fighting pride? And this one, pride, is probably the harder one for us to get right, actually. Because you can be saying all the right things and still be so proud, so proud. You know, we can even pray proudly. Some people say proud people don't pray. That is such a lie. Proud people pray all the time. And Jesus is going to talk about one in Luke chapter 18. You remember the Pharisee? He was praying pridefully. And it's ugly. And it's devastating to our relationship with God. Because God hates pride. To the point where if you're unrepentant proud, if you're unrepentant proud, you can't have a positive relationship with God. You can think you have a relationship with God. Of course, you're proud. But you can't have a positive relationship with God if you're unrepentant proud because God says he's opposed to the proud. And yet as believers, if you're a believer, obviously you have been humbled. You've been humbled. But that clearly doesn't mean you can just sit back with pride. I became a believer. I was humbled. No, you can't just sit back with pride because pride is sneaky. And it shows up in all these different places in your heart. It's so, it's so hard to kill pride. I sometimes picture pride as like a monster lurking in the shadows of my heart who is just waiting for his opportunity to come out and wreak havoc. And that pride, I'm saying, is one of the biggest barriers to you enjoying fellowship with God, to you experiencing communion with God. Which is why one of the things that we're constantly trying to do in prayers, part of what makes us being a praying church so important and you being a praying church Praying individual is so important. One of the things we're constantly trying to do in prayer is humble ourselves. And now I'm kind of getting closer to that key step I was talking about. I, I told you I want to give you one key step. And I said we had to work to get there, and you're working with me to get there. I want to give you one key step to enjoying fellowship, communion with God. And I'll show you where I get it from in Luke 11 in a minute. But maybe I can just say it a little more generally to start. And I'll do some quoting for a second because there's a man named John Calvin who had some really good things to say about prayer. And he wrote this book called The Institutes, Calvin's Institutes. And it's real heavy and doctrinal. And yet this is actually the longest part of the Institutes, the section on prayer. And he gives these five rules for prayer. And his third rule is humility. Humility is the real key to prayer. And I like how he says it. That's why I'm going to quote. He says, he who comes into the presence of God must strip himself of all proud thoughts, lay aside 
all idea of worth, in short, discard all self-confidence, humbly giving God the whole glory, lest by taking anything, however little to himself, empty pride cause God to turn away his face. And put that on a Hallmark card, right? Not, not a lot of people are going to like that. Strip himself of all proud thoughts. Lay aside all idea of worth. Discard all self-confidence. That's like the opposite of the American way, right? Calvin speaks a little differently than people do nowadays. In fact, one of my daughters uh, was going to get me a Christmas sweater with a picture of Calvin on front, and he's pointing his finger, and underneath it says, you're all on the naughty list. And so Calvin talked a lot more about sin than people are comfortable with nowadays, but he's not unusual here. He's actually biblical. If you look at godly men in the Bible, the more holy they are, the more they humble themselves as they come into the presence of God in prayer. So like Old Testament, who's one of the most godly men you can think of in the Old Testament? It's a little hard to think of one if you start reading their stories, right? Because they've all got some pretty big problems and that points us to our need of grace. But if there is one man in the Old Testament you would think of as a model of of godliness, it probably would be Daniel. It's hard to think of, there's not much about Daniel that we see, at least that he did wrong, and yet Daniel is an example of this. He's praying in Daniel 9.18, and listen to him, oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that's called by your name, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And it's like he's just throwing himself on the mercy of God. God, I look around, we need help desperately, but we're not expecting you to help us because we're so righteous, but instead our only hope is the fact that you're so full of mercy. And David as well in Psalm 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. And David is saying, God, I need you to answer my prayer. Please help. But if you're going to help, if you're going to do that, I know it's going to have to be because you're merciful, because I'm not worthy of having you listen to me. And I know that because no one is. No one is. And while that should be kind of obvious for those of us who are Christians, that we have to Come into God's presence humbly. That's like, you know, sort of 101 of Christian living, that we have to come to God, not trusting ourselves. That that's, should be pretty obvious, but it's also very easy to forget. Because pride, pride, it's like this movie, Cool Hand Luke. I don't know how many of you have ever seen Cool Hand Luke, but I, I like Cool Hand Luke. He was this prisoner, he was this small little guy, and yet cool, you know, cool hand Luke. And he gets into this fight in the movie. This is probably the only part of the movie I remember, to be honest. But he gets into this fight in the movie with this huge guy. I mean, a monster of a guy. And this huge man, he just beats little cool hand Luke down to the ground. It's not even a contest. It's like, and yet cool hand Luke won't give up. And so every time the other man knocks him down, Cool hand Luke gets up. He beats him down, he gets up. He beats him down, he gets up. And you look at him at the end and he's so beat up. And you think there's no way he can get up again. And then his 
shaking hand goes to the ground and he pushes himself up. And that's pride, I'm saying. That's what pride is like in our hearts. That's the way pride works. We knock it down. It keeps getting up. And so even though we turn from pride back when we first became Christians, we continually need to be fighting against pride as we come to God in prayer. And as we look at the Lord's Prayer here in Luke 11, in the second half of the prayer, it's like Jesus is showing us some practical ways to do that. You want closeness with God? You need to be humble. You want to be humble? You're going to need to work. How do you work? The first step Jesus gave was to ask. You remember that was the fourth word, fourth guideline. Ask, express your daily dependence on God for your physical needs. And that was last week. But verse three, Jesus says, give us each day our daily bread. And that is Jesus saying to you, come helpless. The only kind of beggar that God wants to come knocking at his door is the beggar who realizes he's got nothing to give God. And in prayer, he wants us to come saying, God, I'm like a child. I can't even feed myself unless you enable me to. And so we go to God like beggars with our hands out. Lord, please give us what we need to serve you today. And that's one way we humble ourselves by depending on God for our physical needs. And Jesus is wanting you to feel that sense of dependence. Feel your dependence on God for what you need today physically. Because that's one way you fight pride. You fight this spirit of self-sufficiency by choosing not to rely on yourself, but making known your request to God. A second way, though, and this is the key step, the one key step I've been wanting to get to all this time, actually. So here it is. A second way we fight pride is spiritually humbling ourselves before God by confessing, confess, confess, Kids have been waiting a long time for that. Confess, confess, confessing our sin and asking God for forgiveness. That is one key step you can take to experiencing fellowship, communion, and closeness with God. You say you want to be close to God. You need to be humble. You want to be humble. You need to pursue it. You want to pursue it. Confess. Confess sin on a regular basis. And this is verse four, key word number five. How do you pray? Believe, remember, hope, ask, confess. Quoting Jesus, when you pray say, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Which again, is, it's about what? It's about humility before God, ultimately. And that's important because this is a model, this prayer, not a ritual. So I don't think Jesus is saying, how do you pray? Let me tell you this. Here's, here's what you do. Just repeat these words. Forgive us our sins. And leave it at that, almost like it were a magic little ritual you do. Instead, this phrase is linked to this whole idea of humbling yourself before God by confessing your sins as you come to God, recognizing that you are a sinner and that he is a gracious savior. And both of those are important. Recognizing that you are a sinner, acknowledging your sin, and that he is a gracious savior. And I think we have to push on it a bit for a minute and, and think a little bit more deeply about confession because confession is a key to enjoying your relationship with God. And yet sometimes we have funny ideas about what it 
means. So first of all, what is it? And you kind of have to start to understand confession by going back to how you came to have a relationship with God in the first place. And so we're at church, and, and we know that Christians are people who are saved. I often tell my uh, children, you can't be a Christian until you know that you're not a Christian. And you really can't be a Christian until you know what you, that you need to be saved. And if you're going to know that you need to be saved, you need to know what you need to be saved from. The only people who are saved are people who know that they're sinners and who know that they deserve God's punishment. And so then how did you come to have a relationship with God in the first place? It's not just that you started wanting to go to heaven or that you're like, you know what, church is going to be, I think that's, a, that's kind of a good idea. Why don't I start going to church? No, you became a Christian because you saw your sin and you felt this began to feel this burden because of your sin. And you understood, this is your fundamental problem. When you listen to somebody share the gospel with you, you ask their testimony, you're always listening for this, aren't you? Because there's so many people who think they're Christians that actually aren't Christians. And so when they tell you their testimony, you're always listening. When are they going to talk about sin? When are they going to talk about sin? Because a Christian is a person who has come to the point in his life where he realized his fundamental problem was not like, oh, I, I need more education. I need to get a master's degree. Or, or his fundamental problem was not his personality. You know, like, I'm a little bit funny to be around, and that's what's wrong with me. And he, he's come to realize that his fundamental problem was not what people thought about him. No, when you became a Christian, you realized that your fundamental problem was that you sinned against a holy God. The word Matthew uses for sin in Matthew 6.12. So Matthew 6.12 is another version of the Lord's Prayer. And the word he uses for sin is the word, does anybody know it right away? It's the word debt. It's kind of the more famous version of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts. Luke uses sin. Matthew uses debt. Just because Jesus taught this prayer on two different occasions. But debt is a helpful picture because when we sin, it's like a debt we owe God, a debt you owe God. And this was a big deal in Jesus' day because you went to prison for debt. So it's not like just shameful. They actually sent you to prison until you could pay the debt back. And this is a debt that we can't pay back. It's enormous. And part of how you are saved is you realize you have this debt, you need to be forgiven, and you can't pay it back. And so if you're going to be forgiven, you have to come to God, and your only hope is the mercy of God, and, and him letting the debt go. And so you confess, you acknowledge your sin to God, you call your sin what God calls it, and you plead for his mercy. And the good news, of course, is what? That he's able to forgive. And he's willing to forgive you, not just because you're so sorry, like, oh, boy, that guy, I can tell he's really sorry. I should let this go. No, he's able to forgive you because of the work of Jesus. And so this is not about you just going around feeling badly about yourself. No, what happens is we see we've sinned. We realize God has provided a way to save sinners. And when we humble ourselves, confessing and trusting in what God's done through Christ, God immediately forgives us of absolutely every sin we ever committed or will commit because he's punished those sins when Jesus died on the cross, which is just 
<laughs> awesome. It's the kind of thing that makes everybody want to be a preacher, if you understand it. It's revolutionary. I often think, you know, what if there was a way that you could know that no matter what shameful things you've said or done in your past, you look back, you can maybe think of some. What if there's a way you could know that you could get through that, go through that, and come out on the other side cleansed, right, pure, holy before God? And there is a way. We, that's part of what makes us so excited as Christians. We know that there's a way. It's by coming to Jesus, confessing your sin, trusting in what God has done through Christ. You're forgiven of absolutely every sin, past, present, future. And that is permanent, which is not just amazing, it's important. It's important because this is like something that a lot of people get wrong when it comes to understanding what Jesus is meaning by confession here in Luke 11. In Africa, I got asked this question a lot. That's sort of why I started here, before we get to what Jesus means in Luke 11 by confession, by looking at what happened when we were saved. Because in Africa, I got this question, I mean, pretty much all the time. Anytime I met somebody new who came from a Christian background, I knew that I was going to have to talk to them about this because they always, 9.9 .9 times out of 10, were really confused about this. And they would come to me, especially when I was really, you know, preaching the gospel. They would come to me afterwards and they would say, but pastor, I'm, I'm confused. Or they'd say, Maruti, I'm confused. If, if I'm a Christian and I sin after I become a Christian... And then I die right after I sinned, like I got hit by a bus. And so I didn't get the chance to ask God for forgiveness for that sin before I die. Will I go to heaven or hell? And they would be really bothered by that. And yet that's not a hard question. If you really were a Christian, you go to heaven. If you think of God like a judge, when you first confess your sins and ask God for forgiveness, it's like the judge, once and for all, totally cleared the, all the debt you ever owed or will ever owe him in the future. It's all gone for good. So it's not like when you become a Christian, God just wipes away all the bad stuff you did in the past and then you've got to work to maintain that relationship with God through continual confession the rest of your life. That's not biblical. If you want to prove that, there's a lot of Bible verses, Romans 5.1, Romans 8.1, Colossians 2.13. And we could go on and on. It's all over the Bible. If you're saved, you are saved, even if you don't always remember to confess every sin. And that's good news, not just biblically, but practically it's good news because it would be absolutely impossible for you to remember every sin you ever committed. And besides, there are a lot of sins that you don't even know you're committing when you commit them. And so I'm saying if forgiveness depended on your ability to remember every single specific sin and confess it and repent of it, you would never have assurance of salvation. But you can have assurance of salvation because it depends not on how sorry you felt or how well you repented. 
your salvation and forgiveness of sin depends on Jesus. And yet, obviously the reason that question comes up is because Jesus says here that we are regularly to be confessing sin and asking for forgiveness. And you remember Luke 11, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is actually really for Christians. This isn't like, oh, quick pray this so that you can be saved. Jesus is teaching us this prayer, assuming that we're Christians. And we know that because he's teaching us to call God Father. And if you're a non-Christian, you can't really call God Father the way that Jesus is telling us to here. And yet if that's true, why does Jesus tell us to be confessing and asking for forgiveness? You see the question? We can understand the role confession plays at the beginning of our Christian life. You need to acknowledge your sin to enjoy God's forgiveness. But once you're forgiven, why is Jesus telling you to confess sin now that you're a Christian? And it's not just Jesus either. What other famous passage talks about confession of sin? First one your mind goes to. 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sin, John says, and the tense there is, if we continually confess our sins, if we continually confess our sins, he's faithful and just to keep cleansing us from all unrighteousness. So what, why do we need to continually confess our sin? One reason we confess is because God's not just a judge. He's also your father. If you're a Christian, you have a relationship with God. And so even though you have been forgiven of sin's penalty all the way back when you first were saved, you still experience some of sin's consequences. And one of sin's consequences is that you grieve God, which should grieve you. Because again, he's your father and he loves you. And so when you've sinned and you know you've sinned, you go back to God as a way of remembering that you have an actual relationship with him and you ask him to forgive you, not because, oh no, suddenly you think, I'm not a Christian anymore. Now God hates me. No, there's no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. But the fact that there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus doesn't mean once you become a Christian that you're somehow incapable of doing things that make God sad. You can do things that grieve God, which is obviously going to have an effect on your relationship. It's kind of like a father and a son. You love your son. You always love your son. But that doesn't mean you never get upset. It doesn't mean that you can't be sad about some of the things that he does, and God can too, which is one reason he's given us the gift of confession, confessing your sin. It's kind of like your son sitting in your lap crying and hugging you after he's recognized what he's done. He's not suddenly like, oh, I'm glad you came and cried because you're my son again. Woo. No, of course not. But that certainly enables you to enjoy the relationship and even more enables him to enjoy that relationship. And that's one reason we confess sin. Another reason confession is important is because God knows what would happen to us spiritually if we didn't. And I think specifically, this is one way you fight pride. Confession is one key step in enjoying your relationship with God because even though you knocked pride down initially in salvation, it gets back up again. And that pride creates 
lots of problems. And one of the specific problems that pride creates in your life is that it causes you to stop sensing how much you need Jesus. And if you have come to the point in your life where you have stopped sensing how much you need Jesus, that is like absolute death in your communion with God. I remember someone explaining how Christian growth is supposed to work. So this is a little simple explanation of how Christian growth is supposed to work. When you first became a Christian, what happens? You become aware of God's holiness and your sinfulness. And so you're like, God, wow, I am a sinner. You are holy. I can't fix this. And so you're converted and you trust and hope in Jesus because you know he's done what you could never have done. He's bridged the gap between your sinfulness and God's holiness. He's taken God's holy wrath towards your sin on himself. And yet at that point, even though you realize that, even though you're saved, even though you're converted, you still have a very small view of God's holiness and your sin. Like you get it, but you don't get it. You know God is holy, but not really how holy. And you know you're a sinner, but not really how sinful. And so what happens as you grow in your Christian life? And you do all the things you do. You read the Bible, you start coming to church, you get together with other Christians. What happens is that you start growing in your awareness of how holy God is. And as you grow in your awareness of how holy God is, you also grow in your awareness of how sinful you are. And so it's not like God's actually becoming more holy or even that you're actually becoming more sinful, but your awareness of both is growing. And as you're growing in your awareness of God's holiness and your sinfulness, something beautiful happens because something else grows at the same time. And that is your appreciation and love for Jesus and what he's done. So God looks bigger, your sin looks bigger, and the cross keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger to you. That is how growth is supposed to work. You meet an old godly man, 85 years old, a godly man. Jesus loves me. He's amazed by that. Because he, he's grown in his understanding of his sinfulness and God's holiness. So the cross has become so big to him. That's how growth is supposed to work in the Christian life. And closeness and communion with God as well. And yet, unfortunately, obviously, while that's how it's supposed to work, it doesn't always work like that. And it doesn't always work like that because we are just so proud. And we have this ongoing tendency to make the cross seem smaller by making our righteousness seem bigger and thinking of ourselves as someone better than we really are, which just kills the closeness between us and God. And it's one reason why you need to make a regular habit of humbly coming to God and asking for forgiveness of sin. As you confess your sin to God, Christ becomes sweeter to your soul. If you say and realize that you are a sinner, how precious Christ's blood becomes to you. And so, yeah, of course, we confess sin because God's our father and we know our sin grieves God. But we also confess sin because we realize this is a habit God's designed for our own good. 
I mean, this is definitely not God up in heaven being like, ah, it kind of feels good to see those guys feel bad about themselves. I like them. God, feel a little worse. Which is actually how the world wants you to think about it, right? I don't think most unbelievers like this idea of confession. But the funny thing is, that doesn't mean they don't feel bad about stuff. You meet people, it's actually kind of sad. You meet people, they're unbelievers. They don't like this idea of confession. And yet, they're feeling bad about stuff all the time. And unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that they're feeling bad about isn't even sin in the world. That's what's sad. You got people feeling bad. What are they feeling mostly bad about? They're not as good looking as someone else. Or uh, they have this strange personality. And it's just like huge burden on their back. And that's part of why confession is so important because it forces you to slow down as a Christian and think what is the real problem? Because a lot of times we're taking the world's shame on ourselves. The real problem is not that I'm not able to buy my family a house or, or, or that I don't have an important job or that I didn't go to a good school or that people don't think I'm successful. That stuff doesn't matter to God. The real problem is sin. And so I don't need to ask God and go around feeling badly for most of my life, asking God for forgiveness for things that are not sin, but I do need to ask God for forgiveness for things that are. And what happens if you don't do that on a regular basis is that you, you, you're likely to get all mixed up. And this is actually a problem for a lot of Christians who are feeling ashamed about things they don't need to be ashamed about. And most of the time can't do anything about. And because God knows if you don't confess sin, if you don't come back and think about what's real, you're likely not just to become mixed up about what your real problem is, but incredibly self-deceived. Confessing sin is important because of our relationship with God, because it helps us fight pride, and because it's a way you fight against being self-deceived. And you know, you need help fighting against self-deception. Because there's maybe a lot of things, maybe you're like me, there's a lot of things you realize you're not good at. I sometimes am amazed by all the things I'm not good at. But there is one thing, no matter what else you're not good at, that I guarantee you, you are good at. Like, really good at. You're like, actually a master at this like Jedi master. And that is deceiving yourself. You are really good at lying to yourself. And so if you don't stop and think about the way that you're sinning on a regular basis, it's likely that you won't think you're sinning. And if you don't think you're sinning, it's very unlikely that you're going to change and grow. It's kind of like uh, me physically, you know, uh, when people begin to talk about me looking older, I'm like, are you really talking about me? Because I'm like still a kid, you know, or when they like laugh at your wedding picture because you look so different because we were married when we were like babies, 21. So, you know, when they're laughing at your wedding picture, that <laughs> something's going on. And yet you're still kind of surprised by it because you're like, hey, I, I don't look old. I'm not old. And yet we're not just like that physically. We're totally like that spiritually. We're so good 
at fooling ourselves, and that's why it's important to slow down on a regular basis and evaluate your life and identify the ways in which you're failing God and humbly come back before God and plead with him to show you mercy because of Christ. And this is actually the best part, because this is not just about feeling guilty all the time and coming to God and thinking, oh, somehow if I just look like I'm sorry enough, I might be able to trick him into letting this go. Now, you come to God with your sin, confessing your sin, because you've got a promise. You know God is the kind of God who forgives sinners who confess. And that's what's beautiful, because when we pray, forgive us our sins as Christians, we're praying something we absolutely know God will answer. Because he has answered this request already. Sometimes people are like, oh, I don't like this feeling of knowing that I'm a sinner. I don't like that. I'm like, man, I love that. I, 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 it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. I could, but I, I'm thankful for things that come into my life that show me I'm a sinner. Because my biggest fear is not knowing that I'm a sinner. My biggest fear is becoming deluded and not sensing my need of Christ. Because who does Jesus say he came to save? He came to save sinners. He came to save people who know they're sinners and know their need for him. He didn't come for the guys who think they're righteous. He came for those who know they're not. And that's the good news. And so as we confess our sins to God in prayer as Christians, it's like an opportunity to preach the gospel to yourself. God does forgive. I'm coming to you. I'm grieved over this. But God, you're not like the world. You are a forgiving God. If I confess my sin, you will forgive. If I've sensed my need for you, and if, if I'm really depending on Christ. And yet maybe that's actually kind of the last niggling question. Because we know, okay, we know this is not just about going through the motions, right? <laughs> Jesus it's not talking about just like a little ritual that we perform. God sees our hearts. And we know that even with something like confession, it's possible just to say the words without ever really being humble, which I think is why Jesus adds the second part to this verse. If you look at verse four, he, he does something here that he hasn't done before, and that's add an explanation. Before it was just, hallowed be your name, or like, uh, your kingdom come, or give us this day. But now he adds, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Why does he add that? I think he adds that because he knows we need help making sure we've really humbled ourselves. How can we tell if our confession is sincere? This is like a, a test. And you kind of have to be careful with this verse because at first it kind of looks like Jesus is saying, God, follow me now, it kind of looks like Jesus is saying, God, forgive us our sins because we've forgiven others. Like, this is the reason you have to forgive us. And Matthew's version is even more intense. Jesus says there, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Which sounds like we're saying, God, use the way we forgive others as a standard or the standard for how you will forgive us. Which would be pretty damning for the best of us. And also strange, because it's not how the Bible typically flows. The Bible typically flows, forgive others as God has forgiven you. 
He's the model for how we forgive others. We're not usually the model for how God forgives us. It's forgive because you've been forgiven, not forgive so that you will be forgiven. And I don't think Jesus is contradicting that here, actually. Instead, I think he's talking to people who already are believers, who already are believers. That's who the Lord's Prayer is for, people who are believers or claiming to be believers. And he's saying, look, as you go to God in prayer, you need to be feeling a deep sense of humility, and you need even to be feeling this humility and this longing for him to show you mercy. Even though you're a Christian and you're forgiven, this is essential for your spiritual good and the health of your relationship with God. You need to be constantly remembering how much you need his forgiveness. And yet, that's easy to say and harder to feel. And so one way to know you really are humbled by God and that you're actually appreciating your need for him to show you mercy is by looking at your relationships with other people. Because it's actually kind of easy to say, God, forgive us our sins, the, the words, without meaning them or appreciating their significance. It's much harder to forgive someone who sinned against you. Saying I forgive you to someone who really hurts you and meaning it is much harder than saying, God, please forgive me. And yet one proof you really have been humbled before God and you know your need of his forgiveness is your willingness to forgive those who sin against you. It's like a test. It's like a means of evaluation. This is like a spiritual stop sign. Because so often, you know what happens in our Christian life? We're going, we're going, we're going. And yet our relationship with God is growing colder and colder and colder and more distant, more distant. And so I think Jesus here is like, stop. In prayer, humble yourself by looking first at your relationship with me. Do you know you need me? Do you know you need the cross? Do you feel that need? Ask for forgiveness, confess. And yet Jesus knows, maybe you're like, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know I need you. Sure, sure, sure. And so he's like, okay, okay. Now look at your relationships with other people. Are you able to say, forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us? Is that even possible for you to say? And you have to pay attention to that word everyone, right? Are there relationships, I'm coming after you now, are there relationships in your life where you are bitter and angry? And I'd be surprised if there aren't people here, that, if there aren't, isn't anyone here who doesn't have those kinds of relationships. Are there relationships in your life where people have done things and you refuse to, to erase the debt that they owe you? It's not just that they haven't asked for forgiveness. It's just that you're, you'd be unwilling no matter what. You're, you're constantly thinking about it, at least when you see them. When you see them, you get that feeling in, in you, that sense of hate, like step back for some of us, step towards for others, depending on your personality. You want to make them pay every last cent. If that's true, Stop, because I found your problem. I found your problem. If you wonder, why does God seem so distant? I found your problem, because if you're unwilling to forgive people, there are only two possible explanations why. If there's an unwillingness in your heart to forgive others, there's only two possible explanations why. Once we get past all the excuses and all the rationalizations, and I know it's hard, but there are only two possible explanations why. 
if you're unwilling to forgive others. And we could talk through all the nuances of how there's consequences to sin and all that, but if you in your heart are unwilling to forgive others, there are only two possible explanations. One, it could be that you're not a Christian. Because a refusal to forgive is sin. And a continual refusal to forgive when you know you're supposed to is unrepentant sin. And a stubborn pattern of unrepentant sin is one sign that a person's never really been saved in the first place. And so if you're not feeling close to God, it might be because you're not close to God. And what you need to do is actually put down all the religious stuff that you're saying and stop being so proud and repent and come to God with this refusal in your heart to forgive with all this bitterness and call it what it is and say, God, here's what it is. I think I'm better than you. You will forgive, but I will not. And Lord, that's ugly. And yet, even though I know that's ugly, like intellectually, I can't even change unless you give me the power to change. And so I just throw myself at your mercy and ask you to forgive me because of Jesus and change so that I'll forgive like you do. And you know what? He will I promise you, there is no one in the universe quicker to forgive those who repent than God. He is the father who runs. He runs to the repentant sinner. And so if you're not forgiving, one possible reason is you don't know God. Another if you aren't forgiving people, like if that's a pattern, I'm not saying it's, it's hard, but I'm saying if, like this stuff, if there's a pattern and you're, and you're not willing to forgive, another possible reason is maybe that you've forgotten your own need of forgiveness. So in my life, in your life, a failure to forgive is like a big old warning sign spiritually. Because it's so hard to see your own pride. There are a lot of proud people out there, right? I think we, there are a lot, there's like a proud person you see in the mirror every, every morning. So there's a lot of, of proud people. But one thing that's funny about most proud people, at least in my experience, is most proud people don't really think they're proud. Not really. Like, at least their pride isn't as bad as other people's pride. And what can happen going to church is you pick up a lot of the right words. And so we don't look quite as proud as we used to before we were saved because we kind of know the little uh, caveats to say after we, or the, the ways to express our pride, we become better at it. And sometimes people don't call us on it. And so you can go for a long time through the motions of the Christian life without realizing you're not humble, even though you're stuck in this awful pride that's keeping you from enjoying Jesus. And one of the biggest warning signs that you've lost your way and that you've forgotten your need for Jesus is when you are so hard on other people. When you meet a person who is so hard on other people, you're meeting a person who is losing their way. Which is why this fourth guideline we find in the Lord's Prayer is such a, our fifth guideline, is such a key step to enjoying fellowship, communion, and closeness with God. 
And I told you I would give you one key step you can take if you're united to Christ to experiencing daily communion with him. You, you confess, 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 confess. You, you pray, you come in. How do you confess? You come, you come in pray, believing the gospel. Father, I'm coming to you now as your child because you've brought me into your family. I'm talking to those of you who are Christians now. I come in and I realize that you chose me. You sent your son to die in my place. You know, if uh, God sent his son to die in your place, that kind of tells you what your place is, right? And yet God sent his son to die in your place. And so you come to God not because you think, oh, if I just feel bad enough, if I just feel bad enough, I can, I can get this. I can make this relationship right. No, you come to God because you know he's good. And you know he's a God who's willing to forgive. And, and he wants you to come to him. So, so, you, so you say, God, Father, you want me to come to you. I believe the gospel. And I know you're God and you're holy and you're awesome and you're powerful. And, and I, I, I hope in your your." your gospel promises and and so I humble myself first by asking for help with my daily needs I can't even take care of myself physically God but but second God I, I I'm seeking to humble myself now by confessing my sin and asking for your forgiveness and this is where you have to kind of work at getting specific it takes work Lord I, I've, I've I've erred I, I've strayed from your ways like a lost sheep I've listened to my heart like my heart has told me all these reasons why it's okay for me to do this. And even now, as I'm praying to you, like some of those reasons still feel pretty good, God. Like I still am trying to, I, I, I'm tempted to want to make excuses now. But Lord, I look at your law and I haven't done what I was supposed to do. I mean, I, I, I haven't done what I was supposed to do and I've done what I, I, I shouldn't have done. And this is what it is, Lord. This is what it is. And you hate it, and you should hate it, and I'm glad you hate it, and I want to hate it too. I want to hate it too, Lord. It's sin. It's against you. And yet, Lord, even as I confess it now, I'm not just feeling badly. I'm looking up because I realize that you have not only told me that my sin is sinful, you've also told me that there is a Savior for sinners. And so I grab hold of that Savior with both hands. He's not just somebody else's Savior. He's not just a Savior for sinners in general. He's the Savior I need. Jesus, you're the Savior I need. These promises about how you would forgive sinners, they are my promises. And I know that you, because you're a good God who's always faithful to your promises, I don't have to minimize my sin. I don't have to excuse my sin. I can call my sin what it is. It is ugly. It is gross. It's not better than other people's sin. It is deserving your judgment. But I don't have to stay there. I don't have to stay there. Because I'm not just a sinner who deserves your judgment. I am a son who has been forgiven. This is, this is one key step. You want to enjoy your relationship with God, this is one key step. Humbling yourself by confessing your sin. Will you take that step this week? Will you take that step? Medicine doesn't usually help you just by looking at it. Medicine doesn't usually help you just by knowing the name of the medicine. Medicine doesn't usually help you 
just by reading a lot of information about the medicine. Medicine usually only helps you if you actually take the medicine. It's amazing. God wants, he wants to have a relation. It almost sounds like, it sounds like too much to say that, doesn't it? God wants to have a relationship with you. Do you ever hear that and you're like, God wants to have a relationship with me like a piece of dust? But why do we say that? It's because the Bible makes it clear it's true. God wants to have a relationship with you. Will you pursue that relationship? This week, by taking some time to reflect on your own neediness, to look at what you are feeling badly about. Probably you're feeling badly, some of you. But what is, what is it that you're feeling badly about? Is it stuff that God even cares about? If it's not stuff that God cares about, like you're going around most of your life feeling badly that you, you don't have like 100 likes on a Facebook picture or something, call that what it is. Like, it, you, that, that's, you don't need to go around your whole life feeling ashamed about this kind of stuff. But there is stuff in your life that you should be sad about and go to God and ask him, please, help, show me, show me. Because what Satan wants to do is he wants you to spend your life upset about stuff that you can't change and that doesn't matter. And not worried about stuff that God actually has a solution for, which is sin. There's a solution for sin. But you have to, you have to take it. Pray that God will help you see your sin the way he does, to hate it, to turn from it, to grieve over it, to confess it, and then to take the next step and trust that you are forgiven. You are forgiven because of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word. It's like nothing else in this world. As believers, when we hear your word, we know it is you speaking to us. When it's properly explained and we're getting the meaning of scripture, the meaning of scripture is the scripture and the scripture is your word. It's you speaking to us. And so you come and you say, ask for forgiveness. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we grab hold of that promise. Lord, help us not to be fooled into thinking that we're not sinners, but also, Lord, help us not to be fooled into thinking that there isn't a solution for sin. We are sinners. There is a solution, and it's Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.